Yankees, so I'm a Yankee fan anyway. And it's like uh, anytime I, if I'm traveling on the road, no matter where I am, the Yankees are playing. I've got to find time to watch, especially when he's at bat. I mean, it's just incredible what the young man has done. It is exciting to watch because uh, this is a guy who comes into Major League Baseball. You know, he's six foot seven. People think, well, gosh, I, I don't know, what is his strike zone going to be? Twenty inches? He'll never be able to hit. They'll strike him out all the time. And boy, has he not only made himself into a slugger, but he's a good hitter. He really is. I mean, you know, and he's a, he's a great kid. I had a chance a few years ago at a Super Bowl to spend some time with him and visit. I got my picture taken to him, and I felt like a dwarf, <laughs> a very a dwarfed individual, a very short individual uh, next to him. I mean, he really is, and he he's a terrific kid. And the other thing that's interesting is, as Lamar Jackson has done, he's betting on himself. Exactly. So, uh, you know, he's a free agent. I mean, you know, they're talking what Soto turned down four hundred and forty million. He's probably looking at a half a billion, as young as he is, and with the power that he has. In New York City, he's a Yankee. I mean, just line them up and then put a line at the bottom and then put a dollar sign and say, fill it in. That's exactly right. I can't believe the Yankees allowed that to happen. I, I mean, I don't well, know what he wanted, but I would have granted it before this season started. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, you bring up an interesting point, Kev. You know, Kirk Cousins, for example, left Washington to go to Minnesota. I don't believe there was any amount of money that would have kept Kirk there because you, you'd sort of look at the, look at the team and say, what's my chance of success. I think Tom Brady left new England. It wasn't a matter of economics. It was the team had sort of, you know, as he's played longer and longer, the team continued to change and change and change. And I don't think he saw a chance at a championship. So he went someplace else. And, and as, as you know, look, you look at Aaron and Aaron's and then Soto, I mean, he leaves 440 million Washington offered him. And he's now a Padre. So I think these guys now are looking at situations. It isn't just the money. Obviously, in Lamar's case, it's the guarantee because that's what's happening in professional football. But guys are looking and saying, okay, what can I do? I mean, what are the chances of Aaron Judge really hurting himself in, in baseball playing in the outfield? So what's, what's the, what's the, in, what's the upside injury factor? Uh, but if I play it out and I have a, a great year, I mean, you know, the Yankee, the fans would go nuts. Yeah. They would go nuts if they didn't keep them. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're they really going to cost themselves a lot in this offseason. You know, you, when you talk about the difference there between the football guarantees and the baseball, how, how are you going to hurt yourself playing the outfield? When Kurt Warner had uh, led the Rams to that Super Bowl in St. Louis, the next year his contract had expired, and he had no contract, and the Rams hadn't reached an agreement. He went to training camp anyway. And that's rare to see in football, and I always admired Kurt for that because he didn't have to go. Nobody would have resented him for not going to training camp and risking injury, uh, and yet he went anyway. And I, th I think it was some 45 days later they had already started the season before they signed him. And Lamar and Lamar basically did the same thing. Lamar a, went to work. It's amazing. In, in, in Baltimore. I mean, and it's, it's, I think it speaks to the, the individual and, and their commitment to the game and how much they love what they do. I mean, I – Chief Kev, I loved football. I mean, I I started my career in college as a punt returner. I started my career as a professional as a punt returner. Um, and so for me, it's just I love being on the football field. I absolutely love the game. To this day, I we live close to a high school football uh, or a high school where they play Friday night football. I never played a night game when I was in high school. I played all day games, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, my first night game was actually when I was in college. We played Pittsburgh as a freshman. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever played under the lights. And was it different? 
Wow. That's, that's awesome. I, I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, when you were at Notre Dame coming to Missouri to play a game. And, uh, I remember thinking to myself, cause I had heard the stories. I, and I, and you can verify this or not, that Roger Valdeseri, the sports information director, convinced you to change the pronunciation of your name to Theisman instead of Thiesman because of the Heisman trophy. Is that true? That, that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> I remember going to Missouri too and getting off the bus and getting into that stadium. And you got to remember, I was like 165, 170 pound kid. I looked at that Missouri football team and I went, Oh my God. Gosh, look at the size of these guys. I mean, it was, it was, you know, never taking into consideration I had a bunch of big ones around me. On right. my own. But, you know, but then all of a sudden you look across the field, you go, oh, those guys are really, really big. Yeah. But no, I'm... yeah. Roger, Roger, uh, beginning of my senior year, Roger called me in the office. He asked me how I pronounced my last name. I told him it was Thiesman. He told me it was size. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we went back and forth a little bit and, all of a sudden, I became Joe Thies, but that's, you know, 52 years ago. That is, um, that is hilarious. He created a brand. I mean, it was unbelievable. First time, it was really the first time anybody had tried, I think, to create a campaign for the Heisman Trophy. Yeah, I think it was too. And now it's, it's, uh, it's considered, you know, the part of the job for the, SIDs to do so, but I, it really kind of showed Roger Valdeseri's brilliance and his his understanding of how the media works and how you can can create something. And um, well, you know, you know what's funny about that, Kevin. I don't mean to interrupt, but Roger had told me he said, "My after my after my junior year, we were in spring practice, and he one of the some reporter from Chicago walked up to him and, and jokingly said, "Hey, is that that?" Theisman like an Heisman kid, ha ha ha, and uh, it just it stuck with Roger, and he you know he went and ran with it, and that's who I am today. So a lot of my family is today, except those that live in New Jersey. We're all Theismans back there. <laughs> well, you're still Theisman to a guy that I used to know. He was an older guy. He's he's elderly now. He was a f- father of a friend of mine, and when when you guys played in Missouri in Columbia, he w- he said to us because we were Missouri fans, of course. Although I was always a Notre Dame fan growing up. And he said, Missouri has no chance against that Thiesman lad. And I said, who are you talking about? And he goes, their quarterback, Joe Thiesman, the Thiesman lad. That's what he called you. <laughs> wow. That's great. <laughs> and and when, when I look at, you know, you had Notre Dame guys around you, pretty big guys. How difficult was it mentally for you? You had to be mentally really tough because you weren't over powering in terms of size to play at a level like that. I mean, you're Rudy, except you're much better. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, um, I always played with older guys. When I was 12, I played with the guys who were 14. When I was 14, I played with the guys who were 16. So for me, I mean, I was very blessed with a, t- quote-unquote, a talent level that I could compete with older players. So as, you know, as time moved on and I went from Pop Warner High School or Pop Warner to high school to college and on to the pros, you know, I, I never, I never felt like I didn't belong, but you always sort of seek validation. It's one of the things that I really talk about in my speeches is we find a way to validate where we are in our lives. And for me, it was like when I was in college, it was the University of Southern California. If I played well against them, then I'd have an opportunity to be able to, you know, compete. I belonged. Then we, and then it became the Dallas Cowboys at the professional level. If I played well against them, I belonged. So we're always sort of looking for that validation of, you know, do we belong? Are we good enough? 
I believed it, but I sort of had to prove it to myself also. And then you went to the Canadian Football League out, out of Notre Dame and had to prove it all over again because the NFL said, no, you know, you don't fit, you don't fit the metrics. They were doing that kind of crap even back then. Well, no, actually, I, it was, I was drafted by the Dolphins. I was their third pick in the fourth round because Coach Hula, or the Dolphins had to give up the number one to Baltimore when Coach left to go down there in 70, I believe it was. Um, and I just, I, yeah, I just chose the Canadian Football League. I had a contract, I guess you could say dispute, um, <laughs> with the Dolphins because I didn't have an agent. You know, I, my first contract, I didn't have an agent. My last contract, I didn't have an agent. The last one worked out a whole lot better than the first one, I got to tell you. <laughs> but, um, you know, I thought I could do it myself. And, and I tell people all the time, when you get involved in situations and you need a professional, hire a professional. Boy, that's so true. You know, you, 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 uh, after I went through law school even, I thought to myself, if I ever get in trouble, I'm not representing myself. The old saying is, if you a lawyer that represents himself has a fool for a client. And and you're right. Yep. Find the professional who knows what he's doing. You wouldn't treat yourself medically, would you? <laughs> no, no, not not for certain things. Right. You know, I mean, you, you put know, a bandaid on a course, cut. Of course, there's nothing like those, uh, you know, mother's memory, uh, you know, uh, those mother's medications that they, you know, <laughs> chicken soup and fix and things like that still work today. I can tell you that. Or this one. Did you, did your mom ever give you paragoric when you were sick? Tried. <laughs> well, tried. I took it. <laughs> I took it. I had it once, when, and that when, was it. When I've looked at a bottle of it in an old picture, I I look at what's in it, and she was trying to kill me. <laughs> there's, there's no question that was that was poison. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, hey, really curious. I'm just curious. What was the food that when you had to eat it, you just you know snickered and and you know just forced it down your your throat? Clearly, was there, a, was there one thing you had to eat when you were a kid growing up? Easy answer for me, Joe. Peas. And and when my parents had a strict rule, you finished everything on your plate. We weren't wealthy. We yep. were middle class. Or you sat at the dinner table the rest of the night. You couldn't watch TV. You couldn't go out with your friends, play. Um, of course, you could do your homework, but you couldn't move. You had to stay there. And so finally, my dad took the spoon of peas, put it in my mouth, and b basically forced it down my throat. And I was gagging. And for from that day forward, I have never eaten a pea. Oh, jeez. Mine was liver. Ugh. We used to, well, my mother, about once, about once every 10 days or so. I mean, we, my mother and father's combined income was $12,000 growing up. And so, I mean, it was a, it was a great neighborhood to grow up in. It was great childhood to grow up in. You know, I had everything everybody else had. I had a baseball. And then when the cover came off the baseball, we taped it up and I had another baseball. And then, uh, when I broke a bat, we put a nail in it, tape it up and I had another bat. I mean, so. It, nothing was new when we were kids. It was something else. But for me, it was liver. I used to Ugh. take, I, I, I used to take and cut the liver up into really small pieces, <laughs> and then and and put dip it in applesauce. I love applesauce. Oh yeah, and and swallow it. I wouldn't chew it. It would just automatically that's, pass from my mouth to my stomach. That's but, actually yeah. a smart way to do it. I should have done that with peas. Except peas, <laughs> peas have such a disgusting taste. When I was in grade school, and they made you eat at least half of what was on your tray, I would try to fool the guy uh, who was supervising. I would take the little compartment that had peas in it, and I would shove them all to one side so it looked as though half of them were eaten. <laughs> but I, funny, funny how creative we were as kids. Yeah, with food. <laughs> just That's to, right. Just to get That's by. Right. Tomorrow night, 
on the NFL Network is the debut of the NFL Life documentary of Joe Theismann. And I, I can't wait because, first of all, I love those documentaries. They do them so well. How, how did they come to you? Did, you? did Was this something you knew was coming? And, and how, how, how much fun was it to rehash your career with them? I, I did not know it was coming. Uh, and when the NFL Network came to me and said, we want to do a football life on you, I was, I was humbled and flattered uh, because I, like you, have seen so many of them, and they do, they do such an incredible job of uh, putting the piece together and chronicling someone's life. And um, I just, you know, I I spent a lot of time up in South River where I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, you know, Lawrence is a part of it, uh, obviously, Taylor. Um, uh, it's just, it, it encompasses my time uh, in South River, my time at the University of Notre Dame, my time in the Canadian Football League, and, of course, my time with Washington. And, um, you know, it's it's been an incredible it has been an for me an incredible football life in those those elements of my life and uh i've 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 not seen it um i'm getting trailers to look at a little bit like everybody else i'm very i'm very anxious and very curious my wife's putting together a watch party for our family uh-huh. so Robin's got she's got streamers she's got little footballs hanging from <laughs> chandeliers I mean Robin does not do anything halfway that. <laughs> that's and fabulous so it's it, it's uh I'm, I'm very excited and like I said I'm very humbled and very flattered to, to join those group of people that have had a football life done on them well I wonder if at your watch party people will have the sort of visceral reaction that I have almost every time I watch one of those at some point I'm gonna cry and I tell my son all the time, I said, every one of these guys has a story. I, I said, you see the finished product. You see the Super Bowls. You see the championships. You see the greatness. You see the halls of fame they're inducted into. But something along the way happened that they had to overcome. And it's it's every single one of them. And in your case, it's the same. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's um, um, so many different types of things. Uh, first of all, not going to the National Football League right away and watching the Miami Dolphins go to three Super Bowls and an undefeated season because I got drafted in 71. Oh. And so you know, what, what I tell people, interestingly enough, is with me not going to Miami, Coach Shula went and got Earl Morrill. In 1972, Bob Greasy broke his leg about a third into the season. Earl Morrill quarterbacked the final nine games of the 1972 uh, Miami Dolphin football team, the undefeated season. So, theoretically, had I gone to Miami, they wouldn't have gotten Earl Morrill. <laughs> now, would I have been able to lead them to an undefeated season? We don't know. But the fact that Earl was there, um, because I wasn't, allowed that to happen. So, what I say to all the Miami Dolphin fans is, you're welcome. <laughs> and And, by the way, send me my ring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, you know, it's really funny. I did. I got a small ring uh, made, a pinky ring made with a diamond on it uh, <laughs> to commemorate. Uh, people really don't. Nobody knows that. I, I got a small diamond r- little pinky ring to commemorate the 72 Dolphin team of which I was not a part of. <laughs> and, and, and it continues on with every every one of those guys that are featured in this. They all There's either someone who doesn't believe in them. And what advice would you give to kids out there who face that? Because in your career with the Redskins, at first, Joe Gibbs doubted what he was going to do. And then it was a, a conversation you had with him on a Sunday night, I believe, if I recall correctly. Right. I, I, I say to any young person or anybody out there, don't let anybody tell you what you can and cannot do. 
I mean, you you can you you are the um, guardian of your of your dreams, and if you believe it, if you work hard, it may not be exactly the path that you chose, but there will be a path for you that I think I believe you'll find satisfaction in. And I just I just tell I tell a lot of young people don't don't ever stop believing, don't ever stop dreaming, um, because without those dreams and without you know, that desire to want to accomplish something, you know, where's your future? Where are you going to go? I, I think a lot of young people today really aren't sure what they want to do. They haven't set themselves on a path. Um, we were given little options. When you don't have a lot of options and there's maybe three choices, the percentage are pretty good. You're going to wind up making the right one at some point. When you're given a myriad of options like kids have today, young people have today, um, you just sort of maybe go from one to the other to the other. You know, you know what it is? It's a little bit like the portal in college today. What they've done is they've created an opportunity for young people to be able to opt out when the competition gets a little tough. Mm-hmm. And, and we are, we are creating a generation of people who are willing not to work, not that everybody, and I, I qualify this, it doesn't apply to everybody. But what I'm seeing is if if I'm on a team and the guy ahead of me is pretty good, I'm just going to go someplace else. I'm not going to work for that job. I'm not going to bust my rear end. I'm not going to do the things that are necessary. I'm a natural talent. I'm going to go someplace else or some coach will offer them the opportunity. And I just wonder what we're trying to teach young people today about resiliency and commitment. Um, and it's just not happening at the college level. And you know it's interesting that you say that because I heard uh, I saw a piece with uh, Bill Belichick and um, Nick Saban. It was done by HBO. It was very well done. A documentary. The two yes. they're, they're close friends, and of course, the two of the greatest coaches ever. And a clip from the training camp for Alabama prior to one of the seasons, he had the players around him, and he said, "Every one of you, if I ask you, do you want to win, is going to say I want to win." And he said, "But now my question is, what will you be willing to do in order to win?" And, and will you compete or will you quit? And it, I think one of the poster boys for exactly what you're talking about in the positive sense is Jalen Hurts. He's the quarterback of Alabama. They win a national title. The next year, he's in the national championship game at halftime. Hasn't done anything. They're, they're being shut out by Georgia. Saban replaces him with Tua. They win the national championship in overtime. The next year, Tua is the starter. Jalen Hurts stays there, and in the last game in the conference championship game comes in because Tua gets hurt, leads him to victory, but Tua starts in the championship game again. And Jalen Hurts stayed as a coach's son, probably. That helped him stay, but he stayed there. And then he transferred to Oklahoma the following year with Saban's blessing. But he 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 hung in there and tried to beat Tua out, which I always admired. And it, and it made him a better quarterback. It made him – and I think it helped him as a young man. I agree with you 100%, Kevin. It just – um, and now, you know, I think in the division, the NFC East, the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, look like a really, really tough team yeah. uh, in that division. I mean, going, going into Detroit is not easy. Matter of fact, Washington goes into Detroit this week, and this will give the Washington fans a barometer, I mean, a barometer of uh, what the football team really is capable of doing. You know, how well will they play? Tell us, Joe, as we talk with Joe Theismann, his uh, NFL Life documentary on the NFL Network tomorrow evening as it debuts. Did they get into your conversation with Joe Gibbs at his house that Sunday evening as to when it really flipped your career? I believe it. I believe it does. Like I said, I haven't seen all of it. I mean, 
there was there were three days that were recorded. So there was a lot of stuff that was was put on film, and it's just a question of you know what's in it and what's not. You know what hit the cutting floor and what hit the screen. So, uh, but certainly we talked about me going to Joe's house and having a conversation with him uh, because. I mean, the job was important to me. I wanted to be his quarterback. I mean, we started 0-5. They weren't going to fire him. They just hired him. And, um, you know, he, he, has, he had told me since that time in conversations we've had, he was prepared to bench me the next week against Chicago. I mean, he, he was going to bench me. And, you know, once back in, in the back in the 80s, it's different than it is today. Today you get benched. And you wind up going someplace else and they give you $15 million to be a starting quarterback. <laughs> uh, back then, you know, we didn't have free agency. Um, the job was so vitally important because if you had it, you had it. If you didn't, you know, you weren't necessarily going to go someplace else very easily. So, um, and it, it worked out well, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, and what were the things that you talked about? Because that's, that's a very bold move on your part. A lot of guys are probably afraid to talk to their coaches about things of that nature. But uh, I give both credit. I give you credit for having the courage to do it and him credit for having the open-mindedness to do it. Well, it just, it, you know, I mean, it all boils down, Kevin, to, to how much you want something. You know, what price are you willing to pay to be special? You, you know, we talked about Jalen. I mean, the, the kid continues to be a better and better quarterback. It's like, it's like Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming. You know, he's a whole different quarterback today than he was when he came out of college. Aaron Rodgers throws the ball entirely different today than he did when he came out of Cal. Um, for me, it was, you know, it seemed like Joe didn't want me. It just, uh, we were in meetings and it, it felt like we had an offense that we threw the ball all over the place. We tried to be the San Diego Chargers without the San Diego Charger talent. And that's where Joe came from under Don Coriel. And so at, at the, it just so happened, I guess you can call an alignment of stars. Joe decided to change the philosophy of our offense to a degree, uh, gave me a chance to, to be the quarterback. Cause I, you know, you gotta remember, I had radio shows, TV shows, restaurants. Heck, I own, we had a, we had a newspaper called the Redskin Report. I own that paper too. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had all kinds of things going on, uh, in Washington and, and Joe just wanted a guy to be his quarterback. And I told him, I'll get rid of everything, but give me a chance first. Um, I still have a restaurant in Washington. I don't <laughs> own a newspaper anymore, but, uh, you know, I, I still do TV and other things. But um, he just, you know, he believed to me. Matter of fact, from that day, we lose to San Francisco the fifth game of the season. The rest of that season, we went 8-3 and three in 81. Then we went 12 and one in 82, 16 and three in 83, and 83, and I think uh, 11 and five or six in 84, and then ultimately I got hurt midway through 85. But um, Joe was, you know, I, I still look at him as one of the greatest coaches, and I don't throw the term "great" around very often, but he is absolutely a great football coach, and and he's a great leader of people. He understands how to win. I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame in NASCAR. He's in the Hall of Fame in professional football. What else do you need to know? Yeah, that's exactly the question to ask. What else does someone need to know? And along the way, you got him in Super Bowl, and you went to another Super Bowl and uh, had, had those thrills. I, I guess because you've had so much success at different levels, obviously anybody who could play football at Notre Dame and be the quarterback at Notre Dame, 
uh, that is a dream of every young boy that ever grew up, I think, that loves football. Then you played in the NFL. You didn't just play in the NFL. You won a Super Bowl. Then you were the voice of um, Monday Night Football um, and, and on ESPN for a while. And, by the way, I miss you on television. I wish you were still on. <laughs> Thank you. Paul, Paul, Mike, and I had a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh. We Paul, really did. Pa- Paul McGuire is one of the greats of all time. I had, I had the good fortune and the honor to work with him on some college games way back wow. when ESPN was beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. I think I think just the fact that you and I are laughing ought to tell people how much fun Paul was. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a quick story. We did a Canadian Football League game one year when the NFL was – having these labor issues. So they gave us a Canadian football league. We're up in Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario. It's freezing cold. I mean, you can almost, you're, you're, if your eyes water, it freezes to ice. And he says, hey, I'll, I'll be right back. And he runs out. He comes back in 10 minutes. I said, where'd you go? Did you have to go to the restroom? And he said, no, I had to put a few bets in before the game. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Paul. That's Paul. You know, I played in Toronto, so I know exactly what you mean when it comes to cold up there. That, that, uh, that wind comes off the lake up there, and wow, it does get cold. It does. But what I was getting at is, okay, you quarterbacked at Notre Dame. You won a Super Bowl. You obviously have had a lot of business success, and then the, the television. What, Which part of that career means the most to you and stands out the most to you, that you cherish the most? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I, I, it's very difficult for me to choose one aspect because – I had an opportunity to learn from all of them. I had great, I had great mentors and teachers in football. Joe Walton taught me how to really play the position of quarterback. Teddy Marchabrota laid the foundation for me. Both of them were coordinators. Uh, Coach Allen traded a number one pick to the Dolphins for me, brought me to Washington. Coach Gibbs um, allowed me to be a part of a system and learn and grow uh, from the way he did business. Uh, businesses that I've been in, people have that partnered with I, Fred Gadelli, who does uh, Thursday night. I think he's still at Thursday. I can't tell with, with Amazon and prime video. And I, <laughs> who knows where everything is. Nowadays. Right. But John Wildhack. John is the athletic director at Syracuse. Uh, Freddie Gadelli. Um, um, Jay. I mean, I I've had uh, just incredible producers that I had the opportunity to work with that really understood television. And I learned, and of course my partners, I work with Mike Tarico and Tony Kornheiser was, was fun to work with, very interesting, very different perspective. And, of course, Paul and Mike. And then I did with Sterling Sharp and Brian Baldinger. We did a thing called Playbook on the NFL Network. So I've worked with so many different people and try to learn from every one of them. Matt Millen was there. Matt was part of that, too. Um, and so it's very difficult for me to say which one I enjoyed the most. I, I enjoy every one of them. I enjoyed learning in every one of them. And I have a favorite saying is the day you stop learning is the day you stop living. Boy, that's true, isn't and it? it? It really is. I mean, uh, you know, like you wake up today and as people go through the day today, you're going to learn something. Hopefully you're going to learn something. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, then you put it in that you put it in that bank and you save it for some other time when you really, you know, when a situation comes up. See, I remember that. And, and it works out. Joe Theismann is our guest. Joe, the first day you walked onto the campus at Notre Dame, what – kinds of thoughts did you have i mean here here you are at the mecca of college football with all the tradition all the glory that's associated with notre dame football and you're the quarterback i, I never understood it um I, I never understood the impact of the university of notre dame while i was there i was a student i, I wasn't a, i wasn't a good i was a decent student in high school but i really needed to apply myself in college i went, I went out on two dates my first two years in college 
Remember, Notre Dame was all male at that time. So the young lady I went, went out with, I had a girlfriend back home in New Jersey. And that, you know, she went to college. I went to college. So I went out with a, a girl at, at St. Mary's. And, uh, but I, I spent my time studying. I spent my time in the pool room. I spent my time in classes and I spent my time, um, uh, being tutored, uh, or having tutoring sessions and so, and playing football. So to me, you know, the university, the first couple of years was just trying to, to stay there, but I walk around campus and, you know, you get to the fall in Notre Dame and it's the, oh. the leaves are changing and. You know, you've got the Golden Dome and Sacred Heart Church and the Grotto and so many incredible things. But when I was there, I was a student. I went to my first concert, went to see um, Neil Diamond. There was a place called the Steppen Center there. It was the first concert I'd ever gone to. Um, I was a freshman. And and just just really trying to survive for me was the first thing. But the the majestic nature of the place, when you walk around, it's just got a special feel to it. And it even does. to this day, so many years later, uh, I feel the same way when I walk around. I just, I'm awed by everything that's been and happened to the university. And it's continuing to grow and more and more buildings go up and more and more people have donated and put their names on buildings. There's a who's who of, of uh, rich people, I guess you could say. <laughs> that, that applies to every university. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny that my... I took my son to Notre Dame, his first college football game that he saw, and it was the number one, number two game, uh, 93, I believe it was, or 92, uh, Florida State, Notre Dame. And it, first of all, the game was so spectacular. And I remember t- saying to him, don't expect every game we go to to be <laughs> this guy. Cause boy, you're, you're in for a letdown, but we, we were all over the campus and we subsequently went back six, seven, eight times. And we just went back a couple of years ago, um, through friends of his, who, who, a friend of his, who is a donor. And, uh, I agree with you. Every single time you step on that campus, you're you're in a majestic place, and once, it really is. It's just beautiful. It, it's and you you described it perfectly with the changing of the colors of the leaves. There's no place like it. I mean, October in South Bend, you can't beat it. No, I agree. I agree. When you won the Super Bowl, tell me how that aura affected you because I, I guess it's so brief when you win. You got to stop almost the old stop and smell the roses thing and say, "My God, this feeling! I want to I want to hold on to it." It's it's very uh, it's indescribable because um, there's nothing like it. I mean, you dream about it as a kid, and all of a sudden you live the dream, and then and it's and it's over, and it's now it's a part of your history. Now it's a part of your your past, and you have to move on to the next phase and get ready for the next year. But the off season you enjoy because there are very few of us. I think there are 37 or 38 of us that have won world championships of the 55 that have been played. So uh, um, it's a very small fraternity of guys that had a chance to be able to quarterback teams to win Super Bowls. Um, and I just, uh, I look back and I mean, I'm, I'm in Chicago here getting ready to do a motivational speech in large part because I was a part of a championship football team because I wear a championship ring. And people want to know what it's like to be a champion. People want to understand how to become champions and what they can do in their lives, uh, possibly to be able to reach the pinnacle of their professions. Um, and you just keep striving to be better and better and better. You know, and we were a much better football team in 83 than we were in 82. We didn't really know who we were in 82. We won a championship. But we didn't know who we were. I don't, you know, Coach Gibbs only been there. That was the second year. 83, we were a heck of a football team. You know, one of the greatest in the history of football. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so, you know, I was very blessed 
to have a tremendous group of guys around me. I was in an, we were, we were inventive and creative with the offense. Joe brought an innovation into the game with the two tight ends really took it, I guess, you know, he took what, what he learned in San Diego and, and married it with his own concepts and ideas. Then have five guys up front were unbelievable for me, the hogs. And it's so, you know, winning a Super Bowl is so indescribable. It really is. I, I remember seeing John Elway. We were doing a Denver-San Diego game, San Diego, California, where Chargers were there at that time. And I was sitting with John, and the Super Bowl was going to be there. And I said, John, you know, have you've been to three? You've been to three Super Bowls. I mean, um, you know, I, what's it? You know, what's it like? I mean, you know, do you need to win one? And he said, No. Nah, you know, I said. I really don't. Uh, I, I, Denver's great. We've had a great run here. And, and so I saw him at the, in, at the ESPYs in February after he won the Super Bowl. I saw him ask the same question I asked you in San Diego in November. Did you have to win the Super Bowl? He said, God, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you had to. I mean, it's just part of your life. Yeah, and then he was fortunate enough to win him back-to-back. By the way, tell Coach Gibbs someday when you talk to him that we're all mad at him here in Missouri because when he was a running backs coach for the Cardinals – uh, the reports were that he was very interested in taking over the head coaching job at the University of Missouri. And for whatever reason, they didn't <laughs> hire him. And so that whole school's trajectory would be different if that I'll decision, find out. If, yeah, that decision I'll, had gone the other way. <laughs> I'll find out if it's rumor or fact. Yeah. Cause boy, we, we wish we did have him. I, I joke about Missouri. You haven't won a conference championship since 1969. You'd think you'd stumble into one along the way somewhere, but we haven't. You'd hope so somewhere. Yeah. So we're going to blame Joe Gibbs. <laughs> Joe, when you, um, when you get to that pinnacle and you sit back and you look at everything that's happened throughout your career, you know, you played, uh, I'm not, I don't know all of the teammates you had at Notre Dame, but with the Redskins, for instance, those Redskin years, uh, you had some characters you played with. John Riggins, of course, uh, the Hogs you just mentioned. Uh, football guys are a little different, if I, if I can go out on a limb and say that. There are some characters, are there not? Oh, absolutely. We had, uh, you know, my first experience in professional football, I had Mike Bass was a defensive back. Pat Fisher was a defensive back. My locker was in between them. And in 1974, when I joined the Redskins, which we were called at that time, <clears throat> came off the practice field the first day and, Pat lit up a cigarette. Mike lit up a cigarette. And I'm sitting there going, man, Toto, you are not in Kansas. Um, it was, it was, it was a, it was an experience. But you know, Ron McDole used to chew on a towel. Pat Fisher used to take tough skin and tuck it down in his, because we didn't have mouthpieces. He just tucked it down in his, uh, in his gums. Um, it, it was just, it was an incredible. I had an opportunity in Washington to, to play with different types of men, Billy and Sonny. You know, we didn't get along because I wanted their job. But then I, as, as time went on, I came to admire both of them, Sonny's ability to throw the football, Billy's ability to get the team to rally around him uh, and lead the guys. Um, you know, Art Monk in the Hall of Fame, Daryl Green in the Hall of Fame. Coach Gibbs in the Hall of Fame, Russ Grimm in the Hall of Fame. One of the travesties in professional football is that Joe Jacoby is not in the Hall of Fame, and hopefully that will be rectified somewhere in the not too distant future. But there, everybody was different. I mean, and and I think that's one of the things that what scares me a little bit about where we are today, Kevin, in society is people don't respect one another for being who they are or what they want to be or their opinion. And, and that word respect seems to be escaping society. We don't have to agree. Right. Matter of fact, most of the time we won't agree. But I respect your opinion. 
respect mine, and yeah. we move on. And and, 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 and I've always said instead that instead of this confrontational world that we we find ourselves in, I've always said that that when they keep saying we need to unify, I say no, we don't actually. What made the country great is that we have differences of opinion, and then we can debate them and figure out which one or a combination and mix them together, which one works. Because if everybody right. thought the same way, you're never going to make progress, number one. But what they a vanilla... Call social, they call that socialism. They call that socialism. That's exactly right. And and a vanilla world, if everybody thought the same thing. And I couldn't agree with you more. That That is something that needs to be changed. And I don't know what it's like in the locker rooms around football these days, but I would I would imagine that sport is one place where things don't change too much in the locker room, do they? I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I've got to get going too. Okay. Uh, but, um, but no, it, it is. I, I think it's, it's, I call it the great escape. I mean, you know, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world, when you walk into a locker room, it's a different universe. It's a different set of players. It's a different set of people. Um, you get out on that football field and you work up a sweat and you're challenged mentally, you're challenged physically and you're challenged emotionally. And uh, it's it's just it's just a great experience. It's superb, and it's always a great experience to visit with you, Joe. We thank you for your time as always. It's been a fun time every time we get together and chat. Congratulations on this wonderful documentary that we're all anxious to see tomorrow night. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Thanks, Joe. That's Joe bye, Theismann. Buddy. You bet. Joe Theismann bye visiting bye. with us. Bye, bye, Joe. What a great guy, huh? I mean, they don't come much better than that. Great stories. Great philosophies. Joe Theismann's always been one of those guys that I have so much respect for. He, he He's not a guy that, that you listen to and you think, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You listen to Joe Theismann and you think, my God, there's a lot I can learn from him. And what a competitor. I mean, to call your head coach in the NFL when you're 0-5 and say, I'd like to come over and talk, <laughs> you would expect the coach to say, stay where you are. You're 0-5. We don't have anything to talk about. I thought his comment about Tom Brady's reason for leaving New England was very interesting, that he didn't see his chances of winning to be as great in New England if he had stayed. Now, the year he left, of course, it's Tom Brady leaving, and the Patriots put Cam Newsom in as their quarterback, and they were horrible. But the team around Newsom wasn't very good. He wasn't either. Tom Brady would have certainly made it better. But the year he left, if you remember Tom Brady's final pass as a New England Patriot, was in a playoff game against Tennessee in New England, in which the Patriots were upset, and his last pass was intercepted in return for a touchdown. And there was a lot of speculation at the time about, well, he'll never leave. That'll never be his last pass as a Patriot. And I was one of the people that believed that. There's no way he's leaving. He's won six Super Bowls. He's not leaving on that note. He's too competitive. Well, I think he looked around, as Joe Theismann describes it there, and I think Joe's right. Brady looked around and said, that's about as good a chance as I'm going to get. It's not going to happen here right now, and I'm getting old. He looked at Tampa and said, they bring the right guys in there with what they've got. We can win. And they did. He was right. Our phone lines are open, toll free, of course, always. 636-538-0746. 636-538-0746 on any of the topics that we've discussed today. And I understand that just as we were talking with Joe, we had lost the feed. Uh, I apologize for that, but we got it back up and working right away. Our expert IT guy called me and he said, try this. And we did it and we, uh, we got it back up and running. 
So we apologize for any gaps that there were. But, uh, boy, there were no gaps in Joe Theismann's conversation. If you haven't watched those documentaries on NFL Network, they run them all the time. All you have to do is, especially on a Saturday afternoon, opposite college football, they'll run the NFL Life documentaries. And there's something. I can't wait to see his. Interesting that he has not seen it. I would have thought they would have sent him a copy just gratis. So that'll be a, an interesting watch party at the Theismann home. But um, it is a great story that Roger Valdeseri changed his name. So how do you pronounce your name? Uh, Theismann. Well, it's Theismann now. <laughs> You're Joe Theismann. That's a classic. But what a career. Redskins, two Super Bowls, won one, lost one, lost to the Raiders. Had the best team. He's right. They had the best team. But I didn't know that story about the Dolphins. I didn't know that he had opted to go to Canada because he didn't work it out with the Dolphins. I just thought he was unwanted in the NFL, and he proved himself in Canada. And he's correct. I remember him starting his career as a punt returner. Um, and that uh, joggled my mind for a minute because I had forgotten that that's how he started. So that's a guy that, as he, you heard him talk about, his love for the game. He just loves football. And you have to love football to want to make it as a punt returner. That's not the safest job in the world, and it's certainly not the most secure job in the world. But um, I bet you, I bet you that on a trivia question, very few people would get that right. I know I wouldn't have, and yet I remember it once. My mind is jogged. I remember him being a punt returner. But um, it's great to hear that he's still uh, giving motivational speeches. Wouldn't you love to be a part of that? You think he could get you fired up? I've always found it interesting that titans of the corporate world always bring in sports figures to speak to their executives or their people wherever they are in their company, whatever level they're at. Coaches are always in demand. Vince Lombardi was in great demand. Uh, He was offered several CEO jobs when he retired. Bill Walsh was a speaker for a long time. They want to know what makes these people successful. especially from a coaching standpoint, the organization, the attention to detail, all of those things that make a coach successful, and corporations want to know. My friend who owns the Astros, Jim Crane, has always told me, and he was an athlete, but he's always told me that when he first got his company going, he sought to hire only ex-athletes in managerial positions. And I asked him why, and he said, because they compete. And they know what it takes to win. And so they won't accept defeat in the business world, just as they wouldn't accept defeat on the football field or the baseball field or the basketball court or the hockey rink. And it makes sense. Athletes are a different breed in that respect. Mentally strong, usually. But the mentally weak ones don't make it. But they're mentally strong because they deal with adversity all the time. I mean, you're a, you're a hitter in baseball. You, Paul Goldschmidt, for instance, right now, the Cardinals, going through a slump that you never saw coming, the kind of season he was having. How mentally difficult is that for him right now? People say, well, he's making, you know, $160 million, so how, how tough could it be? It's still tough because he's a competitor. He doesn't have to worry about where his next meal's coming from. He's not playing under that kind of pressure. As Joe Theismann's era, those guys were. But nonetheless... I think that's the, the the thing on the resume that a lot of corporate folks look for now is 
did you play sports at any level? Uh, what kind of a competitor are you? I mean, that's who I would want. When Jim Crane told me that, I thought, you know, if I ran my business, that's who I'd want. I'd want somebody that played sports at some level. You don't have to be a pro. I don't think Jim hired anybody that was a pro, but he hired people that had played at some level, high school or college. And he is right. And you'll you'll know who those people are, by the way, if you're sitting down with a family function, you're playing a board game, or you're you're playing uh, uh, jarts out in the yard, some some family game. You'll know who the athlete is because they're going to want to win. You know, you can throw the sand bean bags into the the hole of the board. The athletes want to win. We have had some knockdown drag out games at my son's house. He wants to win. I want to win. His friends are athletes. They want to win. Nobody nobody is happy to lose those games. <laughs> it is a different mindset. We might be wacky. We probably are. But we don't like to lose. And I think that's what uh, makes people like Joe Theismann and uh, Vince Lombardi, obviously, Don Shula, Bill Belichick. You'd, you'd pay to hear them speak. I remember John Madden the great Raiders coach and, of course, uh, the Fox television and CBS television analyst, the best there ever was, who just died last Christmas. I remember uh, him saying that as a young coach, he went into a a football, I guess what, what they call them, convention, not really a convention, but a seminar, and Vince Lombardi was speaking. And he said, I had all these great ideas of how I run my offense, and I went in and sat in the back of the room And he said, for eight hours, Vince Lombardi talked about one play, the Packers sweep, and how each player of the 11 offensive players had to do this, 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 and this to make it work. And I remember seeing Lombardi describing it on an NFL Films video. He described the Packer power sweep. And and John Madden said, when I was done with the seminar, I got up, threw all my notes away that I thought were wonderful, and he said and said to myself, I don't know anything about football. This guy just spent eight hours dissecting one play, and that's why they run it perfectly. They always said that the Packers had 15 offensive plays, and that's all they did at practice was run them over and over and over again. It might sound monotonous, but when the game was on, they ran those plays perfectly. And that's why he was the greatest coach ever, as far as I'm concerned, he still is. A friend of mine who's a retired executive at Anheuser-Busch had texted me that they had John Gruden, Tony Dungy, all speak at the different seminars for them. Tony Dungy, I would imagine, would be a great speaker, as would Gruden. Gruden would get so fired up, he'd probably belt the wall. I mean, I talked to Gruden when I did a Tampa Bay NFL game, and we only talked to him for about 45 minutes, and he was already frothing at the mouth, ready to go play. He's a classic. And I'm hearing stories about how he would want to get back into coaching at the college level. If that's true, and I don't know if it is, but if it's true, where's Missouri? I mean, I don't care who your coach is. If you can get John Gruden, unless your coach is Nick Saban or Kirby Smart or Lincoln Riley at Southern Cal, you better go after John Gruden. I'm stunned that Notre Dame didn't make a substantial offer to him because at one point he wanted to coach Notre Dame. 
But this woke society has branded John Gruden now. Oh, boy, he sent some emails to an executive with the Redskins, and they were jocular in nature talking about women or race or whatever the case may be. Nothing was nothing that I read would have even made me raise an eyebrow. But, of course, somehow the NFL leaked them out. What they have against Gruden is beyond me. But he's suing them, so good for him. But some school, hopefully, will take that opportunity. They took a chance on Bobby Petrino at Missouri State. Yet nobody's willing to give Art Bryles a chance or John Gruden a chance. See, again, I'm, I'm a little different. If I ran one of these universities' athletic departments, I would snatch either one of them up so fast. And then people say, well, you're, you know, you're going to get a lot of pushback. I'd laugh. I'd say, guess what? If I get any negative criticism, I'll be the guy laughing after we win conference championship after conference championship and compete for the national championship. I'll be the last guy laughing when donors are lining up to build new buildings on campus for the medical school or any other school, business school, whatever, the nursing school, whatever the university needs, the library. It's always been the football people who've built it. And I say the football people because through donations, because the football program is winning, those wealthy people who are alums love to give money. Alabama had their uh, um, enrollment double from the time Nick Saban took over until about three years ago. In that time period, it had doubled because the football team. The football team at many of these universities pays the bills for many of the campus life organizations. And by that I mean new buildings, new facilities, not just for the athletic department. But the football team pays for that. And what isn't paid by the football team is paid by the basketball team. That's why I always laugh when they say the women's sports should be treated equally. No, they shouldn't. It's a business. And I always tell the story, and I may be repeated, repeating myself here to some folks who've heard it before, but years ago, the uh, chairman of the Women's Collegiate Basketball Coaches Association was the coach at SIU Carbondale. And she had made a comment that all of the women's coaches deserve the same pay as the men's coaches. So Jim Hart, the former Big Red quarterback, was the athletic director at SIU Carbondale at the time. And I called her office and got her to come on my show. But before she came on, I called Jim. And I said, Jim, I'm having your basketball coach on today. And I said, um, just give me the rough numbers, how much your men's team brings in in revenue in a given year versus how much the women's team brings in. And he, he laughed and he said, it isn't close and it's millions of dollars more. I said, that's all I needed to know, really. So when I had her on the show, and I had said, you know, Pat Summit at Tennessee is worth whatever she gets. Gino Ariema up at UConn, same thing. They win all the time. And the, their building is full when the girls play, but no place else is. Now, more and more have become that way, Oklahoma, for instance, Purdue. But at that time, nobody was filling their gym for the women's games except those two schools. That's why they always scheduled the women's game before the men's game on the same night so that people coming for the men's game might come early. So I asked her, about her comment, and she said, yeah, that's true. I, I believe that the women's coaches should make the same as the men. And I said, well, let me ask you a simple question then. If you owned a business and you had one salesperson that made you a million dollars and another pay- salesperson that made you $10 million, would you pay them the same? 
And she says, well, of course not. I said, then boom, that's the end of our discussion. Your program doesn't make nearly the same amount of money for the school that the men's program does, and yet you want the same pay. Sorry. It doesn't work that way. Now, of course, anybody who would say that today would be branded some sort of misogynistic woman hater. <laughs> it's simple logic, and it's business. The people that get paid the most are the big producers. Pretty simple. That's why I've always said, Unions have been the demise of the competitive fire in this country forever. Unions are tantamount to socialism in my book. Did we need unions, labor unions, at one time in this country? Yes, we did. But we don't anymore because the nature of these businesses are too competitive. You, you, If you don't have a union anymore, or if you're an employee somewhere without a union, you're not going to be underpaid grotesquely because you're not part of a union. And what the union does is negotiates contracts collectively. So it doesn't matter how hard you work or how productive you are. If Joe Smith next to you sucks and is lazy, he's going to get the same amount of money. So where's your motivation to be a productive employee? It isn't. There's no motivation. No matter how well I do, I'm going to make the same salary as this joker over here who calls in sick half the time when he's here, doesn't work hard, doesn't produce any revenue for the company, but he's protected by the union. Never understood that concept, honestly. Never. I remember when I first joined a union back at Kroger when I was a checker, and I used to have a competition with one of my buddies who was a checker there, and I said, I bet you I can check more people through my line today than you can. Now, we were competitive people, so competitive people will bet on anything. You'll bet on the weather. Jim Crane and I used to go to Cardinal games before you owned the Astros long before, and we would bet a dollar in a given inning, will somebody reach first base this inning? And then if somebody did, we'd say, here's a dollar. He won't reach second base. You bet on anything. You're just competitive. It's the nature. Now, there are liberals, woke liberals, say, well, you guys must have had a gambling problem. You're right. Yeah, we were betting a dollar. We just wanted to compete rather than sit there and eat a hot dog. So Joe Theismann's words are so apropos for today. I hope whoever he's speaking to today gets the message. And that's going to wrap us up, folks. Uh, we appreciate, of course, as always, Joe Theismann joining us. Uh, that is a fun guy to talk to. And we appreciate your patience through the technical issue. And we'll be back fighting the good fight for you again tomorrow morning right here in the window world. King's Court on KevinSlatonShow.com. Love you, Mom. Love you, Dad. Love you, Maureen. So long, everybody.